Hello out there in podcast land. Glad to be back with you. I have been on a little bit of a hiatus for the last few weeks. Been real busy and took a little bit of a break all at the same time. And I am glad to be back in the routine. There's something about routine and there. It just feels good. Kids are back in school. They don't like it, but I like it. And we're back to normal around here, or as normal as it gets out in the cabin and the Mitchell Plantation. So really glad to get a chance to get back with you. Um, glad to get the cathartic conversation going back um, here on the Three Things Podcast. So excited to get a chance to, to talk to you with you today about something that um, is so important to me that it became sort of the center of my life for a while, which wasn't completely healthy. Um, and now I think I probably feel better about what I'm going to talk about today and its place in my life than I have as an adult. Um, but it's been a long, strange journey. And some of you are on that same journey. And you already know what I'm going to talk about because you've seen it in the title. Um, and that is, today I'm going to address three things about religion. Um, that's a big one. It's a really big one. In fact, I I saved this one until um, I had some time on this hiatus really to think about what I was about to say because there, there's just so much emotion and tension and um, just uh, angst around the conversation about religion and for good reason. But I know I've got a lot of listeners that um, I don't know, and um, so today I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my life and a little bit about why you might hear some of the things you hear from me. If you do know me, um, this will be a rehash, and I'm sorry for that, um, but if you don't know me, um, I do think it's helpful for you to get a little bit of my life in the midst of this, because I think you'll relate to what I'm about to say a little better if you do. Um, as I talk about religion, I immediately begin to get defensive. Um, it's a really strange feeling. And some of you feel this way too. And part of the reason is because I've, I've been so close to religion my entire life. I mean, literally, my parents tell me that I was taken to church in a pumpkin seat <laughs> when I was just a few weeks old. Um, for those of you who are under the age of 40, a pumpkin seat is basically just one of those little baby carrier things. Um, they called it a pumpkin seat then. I don't know why. Um, but I've spent a lot of time in church. When I was in junior high and especially high school, um, I was often the first or second person in the building um, on Sunday mornings there for all the services and a part of everything from the from a very early age. Um, and really great memories of church and what it taught me and, um, responsibility and connection. Um, I left my hometown for Bible college, which at the time just seemed like the next natural progression from going to church every Sunday to going into a career of ministry and went through Bible college, learned some things, um, not all of them about <laughs> ministry, most of them not, um, went into full-time ministry right out of college. In fact, my senior year in college, I began full-time ministry, and I was also married that year um, 
all my the summer between my junior and senior year in college and got offered a job in what was a big church to me at the time um, and a great opportunity for me to get started and also mar- getting married and young and um, just still in that stage of trying to figure out who I was and what I believed and what I wanted to be. Um, but in the middle of all that, I took a job where I pretended that I already knew who I was and what I believed and who I wanted to be. Um, long story short, this podcast isn't about me, but I think it's important for you to have a little bit of context as you hear some of the sort of residue, I'm going to call it, of religion in my life. Um, I was about to preach on a Wednesday night. We had Wednesday night services. Those of you who don't know what a pumpkin seed is probably also don't know that there used to be Wednesday night services. (laughs) Um, Wednesday night services were just part of the rhythm of the church when I started. Um, You did Sunday mornings, you did Sunday nights, and you did Wednesday nights. And being a new guy, I often got the job of Wednesday nights. And so I was getting ready to preach on a Wednesday night. And I lived really close to the church, um, newlywed. My wife at the time was not connected to the church very well, was very put off by um, just the way I interacted with church and religion. And I came home Wednesday to eat dinner before I went back to preach. And all of her bags were on the front stoop of the house. Um, All of them. And she'd obviously been thinking for a while. And she left. And at that moment, (laughs) looking back on it now, I can't believe I did this. She basically said, I'm going, you keep choosing church over me, you keep choosing ministry over me, and this is not working. Um, I found out later that it was much bigger than that. She had met someone else. Um, but that all of that, looking back on it, was very true. And so, so true, in fact, that she left and I went and preached and didn't say a word to anybody about the fact that my brand new wife had left me. Um, I once again chose church and in retrospect, religion and what I believed was my career over my new marriage. Um, something I'm not proud of, something I would have never dreamed I would share on the internet, um, that I would put out there broadly for people who know me and don't know me and potentially her family and friends, um, which it just now struck me as a possibility. All of that um, led me to a divorce, um, as well as her meeting someone else and both of us having fault as often as usual it is, um, especially early on in a marriage. All of that led to a pretty bad taste in my mouth for church. Um, At the time, church was good to me, but was also in a very awkward stage where a divorced man um, couldn't necessarily do much <laughs> as a leader inside a church. And so it was getting more and more awkward and I was causing more and more tension. And so I walked away, um, went and worked for the Navy, um, civil service, ended up doing some things with communication that led me to be a better communicator, I believe. Went back into ministry and met my wife, Risha, um, who God led me to, um, who I don't deserve and um, who has continued to help me 
put work and church and faith and religion in the right place in my life. Um, and still doing that with me today. Um, so I come to you today with what I'm going to call residue of religion. Um, you probably have some too. You know what residue is? It's that thing like when you wash your hands after you've been working on the car and you get grease and oil on your hands and you wash your hands and you're, they're clean. You washed them for five minutes with soap, but there's like stuff left, you know, there's, there's gunky stuff. Maybe the worst part of the oil and grease is still left lingering. And that feels really, really apropos to me as I talk about religion, that you can wash some of the experiences off. You can get past them. You can move to a better place in your life and in your perspective. But there's some leftovers. There's some residue that impact the way you think and feel and maybe even the way you raise your children, the way you treat those around you, the way you respond to a Facebook post, <laughs> the way you react when a specific religious figure or a topic is mentioned. And so I'm going to address that today. Um, and I hope from a very optimistic perspective, because if you're like me and you've got residue from religion, this is something you battle on a regular basis. And um, I think it's time to talk about it. I think it's time to bring it up. Um, I think it's time to acknowledge that it exists, learn what we can learn from this, this residue, and move forward. Um, I want to start with a story like I usually do with a, with a, a man that I can't get off of my brain and out of my heart. Um, I, I met him and knew him for about a week really did not spend a lot of time with him with for, within that week but he made an impact on my life that I think about on a regular basis is honestly I can't even remember his real name they call him Pastor Jay those of you who um served with me in Beloit Wisconsin um while I was in ministry there know Pastor Jay and his story well um he runs a um a boys orphanage basically in Haiti and I went to go shoot some video to get to meet him, to get to, at that point, tell the story of the orphanage and help raise money for it. And Pastor Jay is a really gregarious, very well-known uh, part of the community who runs this this boy's orphanage, not as a ministry necessarily, not as a religion, not anything, as a life. I mean, it is his life. He lives there. His The boys become part of his life and part of his wife's life and he, this is who he is. When I think of ministry in the United States, I think of setting a lot of boundaries. I think of, you know, um, 40, 50 hours a week um, and a lot of days off when I need them. And I mean, ministers work really hard in America. I, I'm not saying they don't, but we set boundaries much like we do with any job. And Pastor Jay had zero boundaries. I mean, as far as I could tell, his life and his ministry were the same thing. Um, and he made an impact on me immediately because there seemed to be something about this man that was so genuine, but that was also almost like the feeling you get when you go to the emergency room with someone who's struggling with an illness or an injury and a doctor shows up and in the moment they have this sense of urgency and at the same time, a sense of calm that you are immediately 
take note of and you are completely thankful for in the moment. That's how Pastor Jay felt to me. Like there was an emergency going around all around him. He acknowledged it. He understood the urgency, but he had perspective enough on the whole thing to be the calming presence wherever he was. And so that immediately made impact on me. Um, and he and I and a couple of the people from our church were sitting around, and we were having conversations about what was going on at the church. And the church that I served in, in Beloit, I still miss. Unbelievable place, doing great things. But very much had some first world problems. Um, you know what I mean by that. Just some things that when you are sitting in Haiti and kids don't have shoes and they're starving, they, those problems seem less important. The 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 song the the songs that you sing on Sunday mornings making people mad and conversations about the color of the carpet and the new building options and those kinds of things and we were talking about those those kinds of things and just how that we were getting perspective on them while we were in Haiti and Pastor Jay said something like this and I I can't remember exactly what he said I tried to write it down as close as I could I'm sure I I have misremembered some of it but here's basically what he said he said we don't have time to argue about those kinds of things. Our children are dying on the street in front of our church. I am bored by religion. I'm here to be so close to God that I get caught up in what he's doing. And here in Haiti, on this street, where this church is, he's saving children. (laughs) I will never forget Pastor Jay. He had almost... He was almost confused by our conversation. Um, and at one point, I think he understood and he got some perspective on it. And he he said something like, I am bored by this conversation. This is a boring conversation about religion to me. Because there are so many more important things happening right in front of us. And what happens is, at that moment, I had so much residue of religion And religion had become the point of my life. You know what I mean by religion? It's it's not God. It's not faith. It's not even the church service. It's, It's this thing that becomes another task in our life. It's this um, category of our life that we begin to engage in that almost begins to own us rather than us controlling and choosing that part of it. You know what that is, most of you who are listening to this. Um, you're not surprised that I, I speak from a perspective of faith. Um, many of you do too. By now, you've listened to enough of these three things, podcasts, that you probably realize that I've got both baggage and a real excitement um, for faith and church and religion. Um, but I, I, I want to have a conversation today um, where I I let you know three things about religion that have come out of my residue that I wouldn't give up, by the way, for anything, because I think it has brought me to some of the place that I am today. These three things um, have become really a really important part of where I find myself when it comes to faith and religion and associating myself with a movement of people looking for God and serving other people. Um, and it starts with this, this thought that things are changing when it comes to religion. I'm not sure necessarily in a bad way or a good way. I don't think that's the conversation. But things are absolutely changing when it comes to religion. 
Check this out. 1975. In 1975, the Gallup guys did a study and just asked... This was 1975, the year I was born. Don't do the math, please. Um, 1975, how, how important is religion to you? So they asked people all over the United States, how important is religion to you and your family? Um, and, man, they got all different types of answers at the time. Um, they had very important all the way down to not important at all. Um, and a percentage of Americans at that point was, it was somewhere around 61% believed that religion was important. Um, now that number is around 51%. So it's definitely dropping in a way. I don't know that that's necessarily good or bad, but here's the thing that interests me the most. Um, the year I was born, 1975, 6% of Americans said they had no religious affiliation whatsoever. That is that they, when you ask them, are they Christian? Are they Jewish? Um, do they have a, a Mormon background? Are they have another type of religion? They give them four or five answers plus an other, and then none was one of those options. And 6% of Americans in 1975 said they had no religious affiliation. In 2017, which is just 43 years later, I'll do the math for you, the number was 20%. 20% of Americans in 2017 say they have no affiliation with God or no affiliation with religion. I'm sorry. So 6% in 1975, 20% in 2017. But when you ask them if they believe in God, <laughs> this is the interesting thing. Only 12% of that, uh, of that number said that they don't believe in God. So 20% said they don't, they're not affiliated with religion, but only 12% said they don't believe in God, which means that there isn't necessarily a correlation between God and religion with people, which is really interesting and probably not terrible surprise to you. But I'm wondering if part of what we're seeing when it comes to people leaving church isn't a disinterest in God, it's a disinterest in religion. Um, there's no question people are leaving church. There's no question that millennials um, aren't wanting to do have the same kinds of habits about church as their parents and their grandparents did. But I'm not sure that, that it's all bad. I think people have started to, the residue of religion has started to compile. It's started to build up in America. And people are starting to be able to separate religion from God, which I'm really, really excited about. You know, the, the residue in my life, man, it, it, when it comes to religion, it goes as deep as skepticism about God and the people who represent him. It sometimes feels like guilt about going to church or not going to church or um, or maybe not volunteering or not plugging in, maybe just going to church and kind of putting your money in the offering plate and then leaving like it's a country club that you paid your dues for, you know. Um, that's a weird feeling that, that adds to that residue. And, and sometimes, sometimes it honestly, it just feels as though it was a good part of my life and I'm thankful for it for a certain amount of time. But religion and church has almost sometimes it feels as though it's become ir irrelevant. That it worked for me at one point in my life when I was younger, but it's just not worth anything anymore. If you're listening to this and you're a family member or you've served with me in ministry, um, don't hang up here. 
because it's more pessimistic, sounds more pessimistic than it is. Um, I begin to look inside of church and faith and religion for a few things that I want to talk to you about. And this is how I'm going to couch the three things today. Um, three things that make religion worthwhile. Um, and I, I hope it's not just to me. This is as I've talked to friends and family and read um, and, and sort of paid attention to society, that there's three things that I can start to say, if these things are part of my religion, it's worthwhile. If they're not, maybe I should find myself doing something else. Um, you know, if it doesn't do the following things, um, it doesn't feel like one more thing I should add to my, my family's life, my family's calendar, or my own life. And so I'm going to start with the first one that I've got on my list here. I don't really have these in any particular order. Um, but the, the, the first thing I'd like to talk about when it comes to religion is that worthwhile, worthwhile religion to me leads to unity and this sense of that we're all in this together. And by this, I mean life, I mean all of it, um, and not division. You, you know, there is, there is a sense about church where many of you have, this is part of your residue, where it feels as though what, what religion does is just look to separate people. You're in, you're out. <laughs> you're like me, so you're in, and you're not like me, so you're out. Or the things that are broken about you are worse than the things that are broken about me. And so I'm in and you're out. It's, it feels as though religion often separates people. We see it all over the world right now. Um, Eastern religions that, um, and, and world religions, Western religions for that matter, that, that, are, that are absolutely unashamed about separating themselves. Um, and I reject that as my life. I just, and, I, and that doesn't sound very open-minded, I know, but I've realized that it is not even a choice in my heart. I just, I find myself gravitating to things that, that highlight our similarities and things that bring us together as a species and things that divide us exhaust me the older I get. Um, interesting. You know that I, I read a lot of the Bible. Um, I read the Bible a lot is what I mean. I read all the Bible, but I read the Bible a lot. I spend a lot of time with the Bible, maybe differently than I ever have, especially recently, thinking about the Bible a little bit differently and what it is and what it means to my life. Um, and the more I've sort of gotten perspective on what I believe the Bible is, the more I've just been amazed by the human beings that wrote it. Um, one of those was a man named Paul, who if, if if you've listened to my podcast before, you know that I've used his writings before. Um, I, I want to share this piece with you that he wrote when it when it comes to the unity and the unity of religion and, and what it does to people or what it should do to people when it's worth something. So Paul gets completely infatuated with the idea of of Jesus Christ. Um, he gets completely blown away by the person of Jesus. Now, this is one of the most religious men maybe that's ever lived. If you look through historical characters, Paul was religion through and through. He was the personification of religion in a lot of ways, killing Christians because of, of their the differences between what he believed and what they believed. One day he has this sort of a, 
whatever you want to call it, he has an epiphany in his life where he gets knocked off his horse and he has this moment where he sees what he believes to be the truth. And that is that this man, Jesus, is who he says he was. And that what Jesus brought was not a new religion, but a way to do life that made sense. And as he began to study the life of Jesus, and as he began to sort of convert to, at the time, what they called Christianity, or um, this sense of a follower of the way of Jesus, he, he began to change the way he lived his life. He began to think differently. He began to act differently. He began to use different types of analogies to, de- to describe life and people, and he treated humans in a different way. And he began to realize that what Jesus was talking about was the antithesis of religion, the way he had experienced it. And so he began churches throughout his area, um, and he even got in a boat and was shipwrecked occasionally and went through some life um, altering kinds of experiences while he began to spread this news. And the good news in these communities was that re- religion, the way they had experienced it, wasn't enough and they all knew it and it wasn't right and it wasn't good and it was oppressive and it broke people apart, but that this Jesus, this man that that maybe they had never even heard of in some cases, had come to talk about a new way to think about God and a new way to treat human beings. And it spread like wildfire. Um, Paul says part of the reason it spread is because it, it makes sense to people. It's who, it's what they know in the deepest part of who they are is existing. So all of that said, he goes and he 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 starts these little churches and and they begin to do life in a different way and life in the name of this person of Jesus and try to walk the way Jesus walked throughout life with some really specific ways of treating people in mind. And Paul followed them from a distance. Now think about it. There's no social media. There was no watching, you know, the news when you wake up in the morning to see what these churches were doing. He had to plug in. He had to travel and he had to hear things and he had to write letters back and forth. So a lot of the stuff that you see in the New Testament, a lot of the the words and a lot of the the letters that you see come out of Paul's sense of um, wanting to keep these these churches and these groups of people moving towards something that wasn't religion because we gravitate towards religion and Paul wanted to see the Jesus movement become something better bigger um, something more profound on the earth and so he felt compelled to protect that movement Um, and every time he did in a public way he was chased by religious people who did not want a new alternative to religion because religion in its purest form, religion in, in, in the human version of religion is a great way to control people. You know, if you can scare people to a certain extent, or if you can get them to adhere to a list of rules that then you can attribute to something they can't see you hear or, 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 you know, experience really outside of their own personal experience, you can begin to control them. And it was scary to think that a movement of people were coming saying that you could have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe through this man, Jesus, and that you didn't need to go through a priest or through a religious body in order to have that kind of connection. And this was a big deal. And it began to, to, to cause a lot of grief for especially the Roman government. 
And so Paul was constantly being chased. And every time he would kind of surface, um, he would he would get thrown in jail. And he spent a lot of his time in jail. And while he was in jail, he wrote, and he wrote a lot. Now, we don't know how he wrote. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, I had this picture of him, like, sitting with a pen and his chains around his his wrists, you know, writing on parchment paper. Um, I don't believe that's how we hear from Paul. I think he had um, secretaries. He had people who were translating, potentially, um, and who were writing on his behalf, maybe through window, through bars, maybe um, sneaking into these prisons, out, um, in and out to, to share these letters. One way or the other, Paul got these messages out. And one of the one of the cities, one of the areas that he had spent some time in was a city called Colossae. It was in Asia Minor at the time. Um, it was called Asia Minor, and Colossae um, was a place that that was far enough from Paul. It wasn't a place he grew up. He didn't know these people very well. It was far enough from Paul that they began to sort of drift away from his message um, when you know. After a long time, after a while, they begin to kind of create religion again. And they got to a point where they started using religion to, to separate themselves. They started pointing at people saying, you're a Jew and you're not a Jew. You're circumcised, which means you have Jewish ancestry, and you're not circumcised, which means you're not really a God person. Like, you kind of lucked into it, and so we're going to start categorizing you. And then... You know, this idea of slaves and free, which at the time was just a common thought, part of the Jesus movement was there should be no difference between slave and free. Now, they were still slaves, and that would be a long time before we would move to a different place with that, but they, they should be treated just like anyone else um, when it comes to the the way that you see them and treat them on a regular basis. And so a whole lot of conversation around that, but in the long run, this church was starting to become religion by using itself to to point out the diversity in people instead of the unity by by not diversity in a healthy way, but by saying you're different, you're different, you're different. That means we're better than you in this way, we're better than you in this way, and we're better than you in this way. And Paul writes this, this what becomes sort of a scathing letter, and he says this in the midst of it. He says, you've been called to a new life. That is a different way of living life. The word that Paul uses is the word bios which is where we get our word biology. It's not you've been called to an eternal life. There's another word in the Greek language for eternal life. Um, an eternal life just would have mean you, you've been called to go to heaven one day. Um, he, he says, no, you've been called to this bios, this physical kind of life that is different than the people around you. And you're starting to sound like everyone else. You're starting to do with religion what everyone else does. He says, in this new life, this is in the book of Colossians chapter 3, he says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't matter if you're barbaric. You know what barbaric is? Barbaric is that sense of no, no background of religion, like paganism, like this sense of, of believing there is no God and this I'm the only one in the middle of the universe. Maybe if you came from that, it doesn't matter. If you, even if you came from that, if you're a slave or if you're free, he says, if you're a woman or if you're a man, which was a huge deal at the time because women were thought of as, as property. Um, he goes through all of these lists of people and he says, none of it matters. It is all diversity that we should celebrate. 
but it bring it, this Jesus brings us all to the same place under one specific thing, and that is to live a life the way He lived a life, choosing to to do life in a separate way, and not to begin to point out the differences between themselves and the world. Um, and this became a sort of a theme in Paul's writing because every time he would walk away from a congregation or a group of people, they would sort of drift back in this religion. And I think this is what happens to churches still. And without Paul writing to us on a regular basis, we have to read those letters again and we have to be reminded of what we're supposed to be and who we're supposed to be. But what religion that we were all drawn to is this sense that we are all in this together. And there's a growing number of us in America this growing number of formerly religious people who don't want to be associated with a group of people who seem to be set on dividing each other, on labeling people and separating them from themselves. In fact, if you're like me, that almost brings a tear to your eye just to think about that I'm tired of being associated with, with people who like to use labels for people. And it's funny, when they use those labels, they usually have some stank on it. You know, uh, uh, people who are really religious and who have strong beliefs about um, maybe homosexuality and, and the gay lifestyle, they don't just talk about someone as a gay person. They use this terrible intonation with just the word, or they begin to get quiet when they talk about it. And there's this sense of angst and anger with people who don't believe what they believe and see the world that they, the way they see the world. And there's a growing number of formerly religious people that I continue to talk to on a regular basis who will not be associated with a movement that continues to divide us as human beings. People who label people as those people. Those people are this and we are this. And we just... This is what is causing the mass exodus from church. Is It's not a disinterest in God. It's a disinterest in being associated with division, with further division. When religion highlights our differences instead of unites us, it feels worthless. It feels as though it's a waste of my time. It should not be a day on my calendar that I mark and get my kids up early for and get their hair done, and then try to figure out on the way home how to apply what they just heard to life in a way that brings peace and hope and joy. The second thing about religion is that worthwhile religion always leads me to a, a better kind of person. It means, leads me to the person that I want to be. I, I am an unashamed Jesus follower, absolutely. You probably figured that out by now. And I'll be honest with you that I don't like calling myself a Christian. I don't like calling myself a Christian. And part of it is that there's so much residue with that word for me and with a lot of the people around me. It conjures up images of racism, of the crusades, of separating people as good or bad in the name of God. Um, I do love following Jesus, however. I love learning about his lifestyle. I love the juxtaposition of him living in a world that is based on religion and him coming against religion but coming in the name of God. And when I separate the religious residue from the kind of life that Jesus was was painting a picture of, 
it brings me this sense of peace and it moves me forward towards, towards who I want to be. Here's why. Because choosing the kind of life that Jesus talked about, is it, it makes me better at life and it makes my life better. Here's what I mean by some of these things. So when Jesus was walking the earth, it was a really religious place, a bunch of rules. Um, it was before Paul, obviously, but a, a lot the same. Jesus began to um, began to change the way people thought about religion, and it's part of what got him killed. Um, but religious people had a bunch of rules. Let's just start with this one. They had a bunch of rules about marriage um, and about the way a man should treat his wife. Now, it's interesting. They thought of women as property, and so women at that point, couldn't even divorce a man. A man had to divorce a woman. So that could should give you some understanding of what the world was like at the time. Women were thought of as property. Jesus came in and he elevated women to a, a place where it wasn't possible to follow Jesus' lifestyle and think of women as property. Um, he continued to elevate the way that, that they were thought of. In fact, to this day, men have a problem with thinking of women as objects. Um, and I don't have to get very deep into this conversation for you to know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, I can be sitting with some really good men, people who are pursuing God, who are trying to get their head around their faith and who are leading their families well, and hear them talk about women and the way they look or the way they dress, or especially when they're just by themselves, and go, wow, we haven't come as far as we think we have. Because there is something about men, call it what you want to call it, the way we were born, whatever it is, that drifts towards objectifying women. And the, in that day and age, it was almost sanctified by religion. It was almost made okay. They would create so many rules about the way a man could treat a woman that the idea was as long as I'm inside those rules, it doesn't matter what she feels like, it doesn't matter how I treat her, as long as I'm obeying those rules, I'm okay. So as long as I don't have actual sexual intercourse with a woman who isn't my wife, I can flirt with her, I can have a terrible relationship with her, I can have a romantic relationship with her, I can treat her however I want to. I can make fun of her. I can do things to her that are deplorable. But as long as I don't actually have physical relationship with her in that way, I am doing everything inside the law, which means my religion is sanctifying this. It is sanctioning what I'm doing. Um, and Jesus came along. And to the very group of people who are making these rules and treating women this long, this way over and over and over again. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. So he's talking to a bunch of religious people and a bunch of, the, a bunch of men who are treating women really poorly. And their initial reaction is, yes, and I don't commit adultery. Like that physical act, I don't actually do. Jesus said, I want to go further with that. The kind of life that I'm leading you to says this, that I'm telling you don't even look at a woman differently. Don't even look at a woman in the way that you know what I mean. Because if you do, it's as though you've already committed adultery with her. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that got Jesus killed. What he was saying was, the kind of life you want, the kind of marriage you want, the kind of human being you want, doesn't set up rules and then just live inside them and be okay with the consequences. Instead, you go beyond 
what you would normally even do as a human because of how much you respect and love this woman that you've chosen to spend your life with. Man, if you can choose to do this in my life, I'm speaking for myself. If I can choose where my eyes wander, if I can choose what websites I go to, and I don't mean just the ones that begin with XXX, I mean anything that causes my eyes to wander away from my wife. If I can choose that, here's what it does. Just try this, guys, if you struggle the way almost every man I know struggles. If you can choose to, what the Bible says, make a covenant with your eyes, and that is cold turkey, on going completely cold turkey on looking at women that aren't your wife in a way that you know doesn't respect them, it will change your marriage. It will change your relationship. Immediately. This begins when you make it a habit. It begins to change things immediately. I can't explain it. I don't know why. It is something that Jesus knew, something that I believe Jesus struggled with, something that I believe that Jesus conquered, something that I believe he was speaking to in a very practical way that if you can choose to do this, it will make you the kind of human you intend to be. That's just one thing that Jesus said. He said the same thing about forgiveness. He said, you, you've heard it was said, you shouldn't murder people. And I bear, all the people around go, oh yeah, well, I don't murder, I'm good. And Jesus goes, I'm telling you, even if you get angry with somebody, you've murdered them. You need to stop long before you get to murder. Because it's not the kind of person you want to be. Bitterness will creep up in you and it will cause you to do, say, and be things you would have never dr- intended. It causes you to drift into the kind of person you don't want to be. But if you choose to stop long before you get to murder, if you choose to stop when you, even before you get to anger, when you get to anger and you begin to say, I, give, I forgive this person not because they deserve it, but because I deserve it, because I don't want to live life like this, then you have chosen a way of life and you have not chosen religion. You have chosen to be a follower of the way. If you have chosen to start with do not murder, you have chosen religion. If you have chosen to start by not even letting anger take you down a road that you don't want to go down mentally, now you've chosen to be a follower of the way. Worthwhile religion makes me a better human. It leads me where I want to go. It makes makes me a better dad. It makes me a better husband, a better a better worker. And if I continue to find myself engaged in a community of people who are separating themselves from other people and who can only point out the bad and who make me angry and who make themselves angry and who post angry things on social media and who say angry things in their pulpits and who continue to constantly separate human beings, this is leading me to be a kind of person that I don't want to be. Worthwhile religion leads me where I want to go. The last one is this. I'm finally to three. The third thing about religion to me is that worthwhile religion leads leads me to do something good for those that are on the outskirts of society. In your town, I know it's the same as it is in mine. I can't drive to work without seeing at least three cardboard signs. Somebody that needs food, and I don't know what to do about it. Some potentially abusive person, 
some potentially lying person, some potentially desperately just in need to feed themselves and their family. And I don't know how to separate the two, three, four. I don't know how to have a conversation. I don't know where to give my money. I don't know how to deal with this stuff. I don't know what to do about it. But there is something in the deepest part of who I am that says that I should not just drive by and turn the music up. There is something in the deepest part of who I am that says that it is my responsibility and I should be a part of fixing the problem in our society for those who are on the outskirts of our society. And I'm not the first one to feel that way. A guy named James who is the brother of Jesus. Just think about that for a second. How cool is that? We have writings from the brother of Jesus. No matter what you believe about who Jesus was, you know he was, you know, he he was the biggest most important religious figure although what we're learning today is anti-religious figure in history um every a lot of religions and a lot of faith and a lot of conversations revolve around the human being that jesus christ was and his brother james which we believe was the was his his next youngest brother in the family this is a, a son of joseph the carpenter his brother james wrote a piece of literature that we still have today and the book of James, which is canonized in the Bible. And he says this about religion. This is after he follows Jesus through his life, doesn't really believe who Jesus is, which is kind of interesting because he's the brother of Jesus. And you can imagine what it would take for you to believe that your brother was the son of God. He doesn't believe everything that Jesus says, but he sees that there's something in Jesus that makes sense. And he kind of sees it from a distance until Jesus the way the Bible says is that Jesus was crucified, he was in the grave for three days, and he rose from the grave, and a whole bunch of people saw him. James was one of those people, and James's life was changed forever because he began to believe who Jesus was, and he began to live life the way Jesus lived his life. And so he's, he wants to make a comment about religion in James chapter 1. And this is, I've said this on my podcast before, it's my favorite piece of scripture in all the Bible, and partly because it begins to give shape to what I believe about religion and faith and all of this stuff that I gave part of my life to for so long. James says, If you claim to be religious, but you don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself. And listen to this. And your religion is worthless. If you spend all of this time talking, if religion to you is about conversation, if it's about podcasts, that talk about three things about religion. If that was, is that what religion is to you? If it's all about talking, if it's all about sitting in a pew and, and pointing in the direction of a stage where somebody else talks about religion and talks about God on a regular basis, if that's what religion is to you, then you're fooling yourself. What he means by that, straight up. He's talking to a group of people who believe this is what saves them that going to church on Sunday, that being involved in a group of religious people that are talking about religious things and singing religious songs and wearing religious shirts and putting religious bumper stickers on their car and making religious Facebook posts, if that's what religion is to you, if that's what faith is to you, if that's what following God is to you, then you're fooling yourself. He says, and your religion is worthless. It's worthless to you. It's worthless to those around you. And then he goes on. Yeah, that's not all. He says, pure and genuine, that is um, 
a word that was used in pure is a word that was used in commerce at the time. You would go to the market and if, if, and people would try to cheat you out of your goods and services, especially your goods, they would, you, they might trade you some grain and you would hand them a coin and they might bite it or they might have a way to figure out whether or not it's pure or whether or not you are somehow faking it. Basically, the word that James uses here is the same word he he would that a marketer would use and that somebody in the market would use when they're when they're selling grain to a customer, and they would be handed a coin and the, the 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 store owner would say, "This is pure. This is real. It's a hundred percent what it seems." He says, "Pure, hundred percent what it seems. Real religion. That is the thing that you're looking for, and at the heart of the thing you're looking for, in the sight of God." And the Father. He says this pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means this. Pause. He's about to give us what God considers to be religion. What real, pure, 100% bona fide, important religion is. Here's what it is taking care of orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. James says it. This is what God believes religion should be. Taking care of orphans and widows and their distress. Friends, if your church isn't somehow doing something for those on the fringe of the community, get out. If your organization, if your group of people who claim to be moving towards God aren't doing something outside of arguing about hymns or choruses, if they aren't doing something outside of collecting money in the offering plate and then building new buildings and repaving the parking lot, if they aren't doing something more than talking about the fruits of the Spirit and how you can become better at doing life, all of those things are important and all of those things are good as long as they are serving what James and God say are the real reason all of those things exist. And that is to take care of orphans and widows and their distress. Your next budget meeting, it should be real obvious what percentage goes to the brokenness in your, computer, in, in your community. Your next conversation about where the money in your organization goes as a faith organization, as a church, as a, a religious organization, this should be real clear that the majority of your funds, the majority of your energy, the majority of your conversation should not be revolving around you. It should not be revolving around what color of the walls you paint in the lobby. It should be revolving around brokenness, around orphans and widows and their distress. And if you want millennials back in your church, if you want younger groups of people back in your church, if you want to see your attendance rise, if you want to see the importance of what you do be elevated in your community, then do what is pure, do what is genuine in the eyes of God, and that is help seek orphans and widows, that is the broken people in your community. You want your church attendance back, pastors? Nobody cares about your paint color. Nobody cares about your next staff member. None of it matters until you get this right. James says, less talk 
more do. Religion makes a difference when it takes care of orphans and widows and their distress. That changes the conversation. If the community in your town where you, where you stay, if this community were to, were to somehow see you and say, you know what, I don't know that I believe what those people believe, but man, I'm sure glad they're here. Because they, they reach out to a, a fringe in our community that no one else seems to be able to. And they spend their money in a way that just makes sense in this town. And I don't know what they believe, and they're, they're crazy about some of the songs they sing and some of the things they do, but man, I wouldn't want our community without them. That's the way they should see religion. That's the way they should see your church. And if they don't, friends, find another place to go on Sundays. Find another thing to be engaged in where orphans and widows are at the top of the priority list the way they are for God. Where people aren't separated, but they are brought together. And where you are moved to be the kind of person you want to be. When religion talks, when religion just talks instead of takes care of broken people, it feels worthless. But when it does its job, Jesus says the gates of hell itself can't stand against it. There's nothing in the world that is better for the world than a church who is doing what God calls pure. We should be at the forefront for our communities. It's time for the May use, and man, is it late. Friends, may you rage against religion like Jesus did. And it's real easy. It doesn't take swords. It takes action. The way Jesus raged against religion was by acting instead of talking. May your religious Facebook posts decrease and your actions for those on the outskirts of your community increase. May you not miss the joy of getting closer to the divine because you are distracted with the worthlessness of religion. May you join the, an ancient effort to engage with God in elevating those who are on the outskirts of the community. Because that's what you were put here to do. And that makes religion worthwhile. That makes church make sense. And like my friend Pastor Jay would say, may you get so close to God that you don't have time for religion because there's too much to do. Have a great day, friends.